thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Alex. It's an absolute pleasure to, to have you on. Um, if you can just, yeah, just kick us off by giving us an introduction of, of who you are and, and what you do. Sure. So um, my name, I'm Alex, as you probably have already realised, David. Um, so, yeah, no, I've worked in recruitment for quite some time now. So how long have I been in recruitment? Goodness, about about 20 years. So I've just aged myself quite a lot there. So I think I got into recruitment in about 2003 um, after university. I worked for about three years in my first recruitment business before I set up a company with my, my previous business partner, John, um, called Liquid. We, we scaled that business over the course of 10 years um, to 140 heads, just over 100 million revenue, um, 11 million NFI, and I think it got up to 4 million EBIT. EBIT. So decent sized recruitment business. We, we did that in 10 years, had lots of fun along the way, lots of, lots of lessons and learns. Um, exited that via a PE sale in 2016. And since then, I've still been involved in the industry. The last three years or so, I've, I've, I'm a shareholder in a company called Strive, who are a go-to-market specialist for VC-backed software sales company or software companies um, targeting um, growth in either US or EMEA. And I've also now, over the last uh, six, 12 months, started investing into the recruitment and HR tech space. So that's quite interesting. So everything that I do is very much recruitment orientated, whether it's tech or, or recruitment itself. Um, and yeah, that, that leads me to today. Awesome. Well, thanks for that. I think that's a good summary. So I think just to kick us off, I think it'd be great just to sort of take us all back to actually just before you set up your business did you say it was three years before you um before you set up yeah so i i went to university i did a sociology degree which i've, I've got absolutely no idea why i did that on reflection i, I really don't my mum at the time i remember saying why don't you do business you, you want to go into business you're business minded blah 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 and I, for some strange reason being very stubborn i said no i wanted to do sociology i think i think it was seven hours a week and I think that was right. probably the thing for me at the time that I only had to attend seven hours of lectures a week. So I think that genuinely was the reason why I ended up doing a sociology degree, which no, no, um, no discredit to so sociologists. But again, it wasn't an area I was interested in. So I did a sociology degree. I finished uni. I had a great time. Um, but effectively, I didn't have any money. I, I went back and lived with my mum and dad for a bit. Um, I got a job in a sales and marketing department because the plan was to go into sales, but effectively I, I, I was skint. I didn't have any money. So the plan was I went back to Suffolk, which is where I was from. I, I was going to do sort of six months, 12 months, earn some money and then move to London and get a job in sales. That, that was the plan. I eventually, when I started looking for um, sales jobs after I'd got that six, 12 months experience and got some money behind me, I started interviewing for roles in London. And funnily enough, I... A lot of the roles I was interviewing for, I was being introduced to organizations by recruiters. And I, I, to be quite frank, I looked at what they were doing and started to explore that. And I thought, well, actually, that looks a lot more interesting and exciting than the roles that I'm going for. So yeah. I then added recruitment to the, the sort of the things that I was looking at, which was effectively, you know, alongside B, typical B2B sales roles, advertising, et cetera, et cetera, a proper hardcore sales job. So there was a job that came available in Ipswich. Within recruitment, I went along to that. The person who the first person who interviewed me was John. John, who en who en ended up being my business partner, um, so that was a nice introduction to John. 
Um, one of the worst interviews I've ever been in my life. No, I'm only joking. It was excellent. John was extremely thorough and a really, really competent interviewer. But, um, but yeah, no, I joined that company. It was a great company. And um, within, I don't know how long, my first six months was really, really like brutally horrible, to be quite honest. It was a very old school recruitment business. So, you know, that's me being diplomatic. They, um, I, I was one of six hires that went in and I, I was the only one who made it proper boiler room like surrounded by some really really good salespeople, but a very you know sales focused again being diplomatic um, organization and culture so i learned an awful lot i did not enjoy my first six months but i did make it somehow and then within probably 18 months myself and the business partner ended up effectively running that organization on behalf of the owner who was a really fascinating right. character really entrepreneurial learned an awful lot from him but at the same time, I think it reached the point where my, my John and I kind of got to the point where we we weren't necessarily aligned and we thought we might as well just do this for ourselves, which is what led us to setting up Liquid. And then we set up Liquid. So so maybe that's um, a, a good rambling overview of my pre-Liquid story. With regards to like, you know, that whole boiler room environment, because look, they, they still exist. I mean, I, they, maybe they exist in a slightly different way than they did in, say, the, the early to mid-2000s. Do you think there's value in working that sort of environment, though? Like, looking back, I know it's not enjoyable because I've, I've worked in it, those sort of environments before, but do you think that maybe even at the time, you know, it stressed you out and you really hated it, do you think that maybe accelerated your progression? It toughened me up. There's no doubt about that. Like, um, I, I'm a pretty resilient, gritty individual. So I kind of, that, that bit was fine. Look, to be really clear, the boiler room analogy, let, let me define that a little bit more. So I think there is nothing more magical than an incredibly busy phone orientated sales floor. When you walk onto a sales floor of a hundred recruitment consultants plus, and you can't hear yourself think because of the activity mm. and the excitement going on, and the work being done of a really high standard in a professional environment, that the, the animal spirits that is generated by that sort of environment is magical. And I think a lot of recruitment businesses now, unfortunately, they don't have that anymore because so much is done via LinkedIn. So much of yeah. your prospecting is done via other channels and the phone. So I think that actually has changed and for the worse, because actually that type of environment it's amazing. And one of the things we did well at Liquid was we were extremely phone orientated because again, this was, this was, you know, when we set up Liquid, Link, LinkedIn wasn't even around. So you did a little bit of work by email, but 90% of what you did was via the phone. So our culture was amazing because of that atmosphere that the business created on a day-to-day -day basis. You could just walk onto the sales floor and you could just hear the ambition, the excitement and the professionalism of the guys there. I think, what was different was back in the day, you didn't get any training. You didn't get any development right. opportunity. You got maybe two or three hours at the beginning with regards to a quick overview of what the role was. And these are the types of candidates you need to speak to. And these are the types of clients you're going to be dealing with. And then you were told to get on with it. And then if you hadn't done a deal within the first two or three months tops, you were out of the door. So. I think that that's kind of the environment I went into where it was sink or swim. And the truth is in an environment like that, 
luck is a huge factor in whether you're successful or not. So I was only I was the only one who actually made it out of that cohort of six. And yeah, I worked. I, I was the hardest worker, and I was extremely crit- gritty and determined to be successful. But I, I absolutely hated the first six months because I wasn't given any support or training. Really, um, I wasn't given clarity of task with regards to what I needed to do to be successful. So you're effectively just trying to work as hard as you possibly can and learn as quickly as you possibly can from the people around you to get lucky enough to do a deal quickly in the timescale, which is going to mean you don't get sacked. So look, that doesn't make business sense. It doesn't make business sense because all you're doing really is putting a huge amount of pressure on an onus on the individual. And actually as a business, what you should be doing is hiring talented individuals who you believe can be successful and then giving them the platform to be successful. So again, I'm sort of going off tangent a little bit, but there is a big difference, right? That That's kind of the, the boiler room analogy that I was referencing. Whereas nowadays, I think, yeah, there's huge value in having a sales focused culture where everyone creates a really special environment by spending lots of time on the phone. Um, and I think you can walk onto sales floors now and they're quiet. And culturally, yeah. I think that's a real challenge for businesses. Yeah, no, I totally agree. It's, it's, it's a shame in a way. I mean, look, there's, you know, things move on and change and I was involved in that, you know, very busy, typical sales environment, um, even before I was in recruitment, cause I, I, I worked, uh, for Southern electric as a telesales exec with like loads of 19 year olds on seven pound an hour. And, uh, none of us knew how to sell. Sure. So, um, it's, you know, there's pros and cons to it. It's one of those things where it's like, for me, I know I didn't enjoy it at the time. I, I, I remember not enjoying it, but I look back at it like sort of through rose tinted glasses and then when you're sat in an office where everyone's sort of on LinkedIn and you're not really hearing people talk apart from the odd conversation that was scheduled, um, which, you know, oftentimes are now sort of done in like meeting rooms anyway. Um, and you're more hearing like keyboards clicking away, aren't you? And mouse clicks and then the occasional bit of banter in the office, but it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely a different environment. So, so, okay, cool. So look, first three years is done. Um, decide to set up your own business. That's obviously a big part of your life. What ten years? So, I think what'd be really interesting. First of all, before we get into like the nitty gritty of, of of the next few years and, and and sort of the challenges you face and stuff, is what was your mindset like when you were like actually setting up that 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 business? Like, were you were you anxious? Were you nervous? Excited? What what did you go through like with the weeks and months before? I, I just think we were both really excited. We we both like the the real joy was that I met John, my my business partner at Liquid, and the two of us were just really aligned. We both had the same vision, we both had the same values. We were both extremely good at our jobs. So the advantage we had is we were both we were both big big billers in that industry. So you know we'd from an individual contributor perspective, there probably weren't many people in the industry who, who hit them, who were hitting the numbers we were. We were really good at our jobs as recruiters, but as well as that, we'd been given the opportunity to also do the management piece and, and elements of the business piece as well. Because as I say, the business owner at the time was very hands-off. So the advantage to that was he was prepared to give us an awful lot of accountability and responsibility to drive the business from a sales and revenue perspective. 
The disadvantage mm. was we didn't really know what we were doing. So, you know, there, there's an interesting mix there where you've got the blind leading the blind at times. But um, no, we, we, we had the skill set. We knew we could bill. We knew we were very good from a recruitment perspective. And we probably thought we knew a bit more than we did from a business perspective, to be quite frank. So, you know, that thing of what, what you don't know um, is sometimes a good thing um, because it gives you the confidence that maybe you wouldn't have if you knew more. Um, so no, we were just massively excited. We were very ambitious. We, 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 from day one, we had some really clear goals as to what we wanted to achieve. Again, a lot of that was probably sheer naivety, um, rather than realism, but, um, it, it gave us, it gave us the, the appetite and the excitement to be able to, um, to go into it with uh, full speed. Do you think that's important? Because I've heard quite a lot of business owners and entrepreneurs and even people like Arnold Schwarzenegger actually talk about this, like you want to know a bit, but not enough to scare you. And that ignorance can really actually help you because I mean, how many times have you heard people talk about like their journey when they're talking about their business journey or whatever? And they say, if I knew everything I know now, I probably wouldn't have done it. I probably would have just done something else. I think it's incredibly important. I think that's a reoccurring theme that you'll hear time and time again. John and I were very fortunate because, you know, we, we went through, we never, we never, we had lots and lots of challenges and there was, there was things that came along, which were real inflection points for us, which could have, could have changed things drastically, but we were a fast growth business. Things went really, really well for us. And still it was incredibly hard and, um, really, really demanding. So look, I can certainly resonate with that. Would I have done it? Would I do it again? Of course I, I would do it again, but, um, but certainly we went into it really naively think i think we 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 expected to we we thought we knew more than we did and if we'd known more i think we would have probably been a little bit more um cautious in our approach yeah so what did that first like year look like then like if you could you just build a picture for us of like like where are you working was, and you know you're setting everything up from scratch and it's just a turn so the plan was, um, we said, right, let's just build up a war chest because we didn't have a huge amount of money. We, we, we earned very well in our previous role, but we also, we were young guys who enjoyed life outside of work as well. So we weren't yeah. particularly um, sensible with our money at that point. Um, so my, my dad was um, self-employed. He had a small office he worked in and he gave us the back room. So effectively we had a rent-free office, tiny little back room. It was in Bury St. Edmunds in Suffolk, a small little market town. Because what we said was, let's just stay local. We'll we'll do it as cheaply as possible. We're going to do everything outside of this tiny little office. We're going to do it for a year, and from after that year, we'll look to move to an area where we can actually grow the business. Because Suffolk is a lovely part of the world, but it's it's probably not somewhere where young, hungry, ambitious grads and salespeople stay. So it's not going to be an easy place to be able to identify and attract the right talent, the right type of talent. And we all wanted always wanted to scale the business. So. It was never a long-term play, but it was 2006 and there, there was a heat wave that year and we started in the summer and, and literally the two of us were just sitting there in our pants and selling like absolute maniacs. So we worked 12 to, I don't know, 14 hour days, typically five, if not six days a week on a Monday night. I remember we'd start invoicing and usually we started the invoicing at about 11 at night, midnight, something like that. We'd finished about, we'd finish at about two in the morning. So 
by the way, a lot of our invoicing was incorrect, which probably highlights may maybe there was um, some flaws in our in our approach of starting to do our invoicing at midnight when we were exhausted after a, a long day on the phones. But no, we absolutely loved it. It was a heat wave. We were just sat there in our pants and obviously our, our clients and candidates didn't know that. Um, but it, it was that it was the excitement you get from an early stage opportunity where you're both just happy to be doing what you're doing and just making the most of it. And, you know, we had a really tight relationship. So we, we lived together. So we'd work 12, 14 hour days, go home, get on FIFA, play FIFA for an hour or two, go to bed, get back up go back to work, you know, work extremely hard with a high, high level of urgency. We didn't just work long hours. We, 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 we worked at pace. So I think we, we managed to achieve an awful lot in that 12 months. And, and that gave us the ability and the springboard from a financial perspective, but also from a reputation perspective, because we had to start again with regards to our, our, our markets and our territories. So it, it gave us the ability then to be able to a have the cash to be able to start growing the business and scaling it out and hiring people, but it also gave us the initial reputational imprint which we could expand out from. So how how does that look then? Just because because the landscape was so different, right? I mean, I think LinkedIn was probably just has only been out maybe a couple of years, if that. I don't even know what I didn't even have LinkedIn back then. Um, no, no, LinkedIn didn't come out. It wasn't out in two thousand six. Really? Okay. So, so, okay, cool. So you set up the business and then what are you doing? Like you've already got your markets. So you've got your contacts. Did, did you have like a, a non-compete clause? So you could, you can even contact those or. Yeah, we had a non-compete clause. So, and we respected that, um, a, cause it was the right thing to do for our previous business, but B our, our boss would have probably come after us quite aggressively. So we, we, you know, we played it sensible and did the right thing ethically there. Um, so look, everything was done by a phone. So it was old school, you name gathered and you headhunted. So we were extremely proactive in how we generated candidates because in our market, it was contracts, it was public sector. Um, it was, it was qualified social work contractors, which again, is an unusual market. It's not a market that people know a huge amount about, but back in the day, there was, a, and still now there is a huge demand for child protection, social workers, as an example. So. If you're a child protection social worker, you can earn really, really good money because you're a high, you're a high demand skill individual and you go in contract lengths, nine, 10 months on average, you go into a council and the social workers were earning anything up to, you know, 40, early 40 pounds an hour. And then we'd get our margin on top of that. And our margins were really, really good. So it was a really profitable market to be in, but effectively the person who had the best candidates won. So if you mm. could identify, um, prospect and engage the highest caliber social workers and then take them to market, you would be able to place them into a contract for nine or 10 months. And then as soon as that contract was coming to an end, they'd probably have the contract extended for another nine or 10 months, or you could just, just place them again somewhere else. So you had to be extremely proactive in how you sort identified sourced and engaged candidates, and then mm. have the ability to maintain that relationship and look after them. And everything was done via the phone really. Yeah. There was a little bit of email, but um, you know, uh, it, it, it was all phone based. And then were you like, it was, you didn't uh, have like personal well, branding well, stuff. Well, I was sorry, mate, continue. No, no, no. I was just saying it was proper old school recruitment. You didn't have LinkedIn. There wasn't lots of time spent, you know, sending videos or, or WhatsApps or, um, voice notes. It, there, there was no multi-channel, multi-channel, multi-touch. Well, it wasn't multi, there was two channels. There was email and there was phone. 
Yeah. And sorry, what I was saying was, so obviously there's no like no LinkedIn personal branding and stuff. Are you, are you advertising at all or are you, um, I, I, I assume that the main source of candidates was coming from like job boards. No. So we, we, again, this is the difference from we, we headhunted people. So we identified who worked where, and then we called them. Right. And we got okay. through to them and we got past gatekeepers. So we used, we used different tactics to identify where these people were. Um, we mapped out where all of those individuals were working and then we approached them directly via whatever means possible over the telephone. And then we would, um, pitch our services and ourselves to them very briefly. We would engage them in conversation. And then from there, we would bring them onto our books, get them registered, because obviously it's a highly regulated industry. So you have to be able to obviously have certain information to be able to take them to market. Um, and then once we had that person registered and available, and we did that as scale. So again, it's all well and good, you know, being able to do that once or twice, but you need to be able to generate high volume of high quality candidates consistently. And then once you did that, you took those candidates to market, which again, effectively meant emailing initially, but also picking up the phone and engaging with every single prospective hiring manager that fitted the criteria of what that individual skills and competencies were engaging with those hiring right. managers and either identifying existing requirements and then being able to solution sell in your individual or starting to develop a, a longer term relationship and understanding what their hiring requirements were going to be moving forward so that you could be their go-to provider. So traditional recruitment. Yeah. Yeah. I find it fascinating because it's really interesting to sort of build that picture, um, of, you know, how different it was 10, 15, or even 20 years ago. And, um, obviously a lot of people that listen to this will, will only be used to like, you know, the last five or six years, maybe. So not having any sort of LinkedIn profile, social media or anything like that is, is, um, it's a bit weird to think about it really. Like it's, it's just such a different way to, to do things. And, um, yeah, I just, I, I just find it so interesting because even, I mean, I've only been in recruitment, um, seven years, but even in my last seven years, it's changed so much. Just even just how people use LinkedIn, for example, the tone of, of how they use it. There's obviously the whole cold calling conversation as well. Some people say you don't have to do them anymore. Some people are like massive advocates. Um, do you find it in a way, did you feel it was simpler back then because there wasn't all these all these tools to use and you have to keep in touch with everyone and everyone wasn't as connected generally were they because you know there wasn't even i think facebook was was still unknown really everyone was still on myspace and bebo and there was i think there was just less distractions back there no um i guess so i think look, the truth is it was much harder to get to people it was much much harder to identify the right people so you, you can't just market nowadays market mapping well he's got on linkedin yeah, like happy days. Everything's just there for you on LinkedIn within pretty much every vertical you work in. So from a market mapping perspective, you actually had to use your own initiative. Um, and from an eye, so you had to identify the individuals in the first place because that information wasn't readily available to you. And then you needed to be able to actually get to them, which again was very, very diff different to how it is now because you can't just simply send someone an in-mail or try and connect with them on LinkedIn. So you actually had to be able to act access that individual. And then once you'd access that individual, you had to actually be able to quickly engage them over the phone so that mm. there was, um, 
clear justification and, and value in them continuing to have a conversation with you. And then once you'd actually got to that point, you then be a, had to be able to develop that into a potential relationship, a business relationship. And everyone else was trying to do the same thing. So I think in some ways, the process was a, a lot simpler because it wasn't such a multi-channel um, approach to business. But actually, different aspects of those touch points were clearly a lot more challenging than they are now. So mm. I don't think recruitment... I think recruitment, maybe there's more recruitment companies. See, like people, people talk as if back in the day, 20 years ago, there weren't loads of recruitment companies. There were, there was loads of competition around. So I think there's probably a bit more now, but truth be told, it was a slightly different game you were playing. Um, and it had its own unique challenges compared to this market where certain aspects of the, the modern recruitment era are definitely easier, but then there's other aspects which are definitely more challenging. And I think the advantage of being slightly more old school, having, having come from that environment was you got incredibly good at the phone, incredibly good at the phone. And the truth is people now, I don't think typically are as good at the phone because it's not the only channel they're using, uh, you know, on a continual basis, which obviously therefore meant, you know, the phone was the way you differentiate yourself. It was the way that you actually got through to people. It was the way that you could differentiate yourself and engage them. Whereas now there's so many different ways to do that. I think it's a little bit more, you can play to different strengths now, maybe more and still be successful. Whereas back in the day, if you weren't like exceptional at phones, phone-based work, you wouldn't be successful. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's so interesting. Um, okay, cool. So look, you, you've, you've done your first year. What happens over the next eight or nine years? And can you just walk us through that journey and you know, cover any challenges you had, but also, again, it will be really interesting to see, you know, as recruitment evolves over that time period, how you adapted. I know that's a very big question. So go into as much detail as, as, as you want, but it could be really interesting just to, just to walk through that journey. I think how recruitment evolved i think the truth is we just went from being a I'm, I'm not sure it's how recruitment evolved really impacted the business i think it's just we learn we learn how to scale a recruitment company we learn how to scale the business i think that was really key so i don't know whether it was the actual industry that evolved i think we just evolved as, as business people and i think the business itself just went through those natural stages of um, evolving. Look, the biggest blocker to any business's growth is the, 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 the bottleneck is always at the top of the bottle. So the truth is that when you're growing a business, you every single stage of growth that you go through is going to require different things to be able to get you to that next key inflection point. So if you're growing from naught to 1 million, the things that you need to be able to learn and be good at and build and develop and grow are completely different to what you then have to do to get from 1 million to 5 million or 10 million, then to get from 10 million to 50 million, again, requires a completely different set of skills and experience to get from 50 million to 100 million plus is different again. So I think the key there, what I'm saying is, as the leaders of the business, you therefore have to be constantly learning and thinking about what the next stage of growth looks like and what are the skills and requirements we're gonna need. Um, 
I'm really sorry. I'm just gonna my my cleaner's outside with the um the Hoover on. Let me just tell her to do it slightly. Different. It's fine. I'll mark it. We can cut it out. There we go. Working from home, the challenges. Um, so you don't even need to cut it out. There we go. That makes an interesting point into my life. Yeah. <laughs> um, there we go. So um, at any moment now, my wife might burst in and interrupt the podcast as well. So that will throw some more flavor into it. So I think the point I was trying to make there was that it wasn't necessarily about how the, the recruitment market itself evolved, which had the biggest changes. I think it was really just our ability to be able to learn and adapt according to different stages of growth and also be a little bit, kind of be able to look into the future a little bit and say, look, what does the next period of growth look like? And what are the things, what, what, do, what are the ducks that we need to get in order in order to be able to go through that next stage and continue growing? Because I think you see that a lot in businesses. They just plateau out because they're not doing that. John was brilliant at that. He was a really thoughtful and strategic thinker. Um, mm. and, and he sort of was, he, he, he ran the operational side of the business and then I was very sales focused. So I ran the sales side of the business. So I think both of us within our different remits, we're always thinking about the next bounce of the ball and what's going to enable us to keep growing. Now, if you looked at our growth from a financial perspective, you'd, it would probably look reasonably linear um, because our revenue probably grew pretty steadily, our profits grew pretty steadily, et cetera, et cetera. But the truth is it wasn't. It was, it was <clears throat> constantly about being able to map out the next stage of requirement, which enabled us to be able to do that. Yeah. So how did you learn how to do all this though? Because like, did you guys have mentors or were you just reading books or were you just figuring it out yourself? Yeah. So we, we read lots of books. That was, that's always been, um, a go-to. So you didn't have podcasts back then. And the other thing that you didn't have was, I think something that's amazing now will appear to be groups that are available. Um, right. So, you know, there's, there's the opportunity now literally to go onto a WhatsApp group and ask a question and you'll have 20 recruitment business owners who've got businesses of a similar size to you, give their, give their opinion and answer. So to have that available is actually amazing. We didn't have that, unfortunately. So we relied quite heavily on books. We, we got a few NEDs in over the years, but I think if, if I was to have done it again, I'd have probably had more of a rolling program where we look to get even more NEDs in and then keep them for six months and just keep sort of like rolling that program. That would be my advice to people. If you're looking to go down that route, use it as an opportunity to effectively rinse an NED for six to 12 months, maximum out of everything you can get out of them and then get some different eyes, ideas and, and you know, eyes on the business. So we, we did have some NEDs. We, we also hired some really, really good people. So it wasn't as if it was just John and myself who were making the decisions. We had a really good board. Our FC, who was our eventual FD, always sat on our board. Helen, she was amazing. And she brought a very different, um, she, her, her optics were really different to mine and John's who were very entrepreneurial, very like aggressive in our growth plans, really proactive, not always the, the executors or the, the ones that focused on execution, whereas Helen and Dave, who started off as our Vox manager and then became our Vox director over time. Again, they were both a bit, um, how do I put this diplomatically? They were older than us. They'd been around the block a few times. They, they, they brought an operational and a financial mindset to the business, which gave us a really good sounding board to be able to ensure that they were separating the wheat from the chaff with regards to ideas and then making sure that we were focused on execution, you know, strategy 
people think strategy typically is just coming up with ideas, but actually there's two sides to a coin. A strategy is only as good as your actual plan and your execution of that strategy. So a strategy might be well and good, but if you can't actually execute on it, it's, it's pretty, or ideas might be good, but if you can't actually execute on them, they're, they're pretty pointless. So I think the people that we brought in early stage were really instrumental in growing the business as well. Yeah, that was actually going to be my next question. Like, I suppose, what tips and what did you learn about hiring and hiring the right people? Like, how do you go about that? Because from my experience, you know, so many, it's, it's ironic, really, isn't it? That recruitment companies, some of the recruitment companies are terrible at hiring for themselves. So how, how did you go, guys go about that then? Like, did you have, I don't know, did you have like set values that you sort of compared their personality to or or were you just lucky that you ended up with really good people? No, we definitely weren't lucky. It was a case of iteration and figuring out what worked and our hiring got better and better as you'd expect, like with any, anything that is from a skill development perspective, you, you iterate and you just get better at stuff. So we had a very clear, you know, PPSD was, were the four attributes that we looked for. Um, poor personality, smart, driven. So literally we were looking for people who were really, really financially motivated, who came from backgrounds where they clearly had a drive and ambition to be able to change their financial situation. Neither John and I or I came from, in, you know, although we were both very fortunate, neither of us came from environments where we had much handed to us. So mm. we, we look for people like that. We look for people who had a strong personality. So again, in our market, contract work, it's a lot of it is about relationship building and development. So I think you need someone who's got a clear personality, who's going to be able to engage with people. I think in some markets that doesn't matter as much, but in the market we're in, and especially the type of individuals we were dealing with, anything from a social worker all the way up to a director of social services, they're quite wacky people. They're quite like interesting characters. And again, <clears throat> if you look at their personality types, we, we definitely aligned the types of consultants we were bringing in to the type of people that they were going to be working with. Smart was something we was an absolute like minimum standard that we looked for. Because again, this is kind of one of those, one of those, I just don't think people focus on that enough in recruitment. I just don't think we always have high enough standards. And I think smarter people make better recruiters. That That's the reality of the situation from my experience, because if you're smart, you can, you can create, you'd have to be a rocket scientist. I'm not suggesting it, I'm certainly not. But I think you do have to have above average intelligence to be able to crystallize information and process information really quickly. And I think both of those things are important to be a good recruiter. And then we look for people who are just like really, really driven. So we were hiring trainees. <clears throat> so again, when you're hiring trainees, you need to bring people in. If you're, if, if it's a grad model you're running, we were hiring grads and we were hiring salespeople. You need to hire people that want to come into your business and, and, and do something really special with their career because the business can only grow as quickly as the leaders that grow that business. So the key, therefore, with any grad model is to be able to bring in really high caliber individuals, promote the right ones into leadership roles, and then have those guys drive the business forward. So obviously you need people who are super driven and ambitious who want to take on those opportunities to keep growing the business. So. I think we, we clearly defined what we were looking for. And I must admit, that's not the most refined list of characteristics. 
but it worked for us at the time. And if I was to do it again, I'm a little bit more sophisticated now. And I've spent a little bit more time mm. understanding and researching, hiring. So I, I, I think it would be different now, but that, that was our broad starting point. And then we had a really, really thorough and robust interview process to be able to identify those particular characteristics, whether it was competency-based interviewing or pure, um, I think the skill of a good interviewer, especially when you're hiring grads is you need to effectively be a bit of a psychiatrist. You need to be able to dig into and analyze literally from someone's childhood to where they are now, the type of person they are, the decisions they've made in their life, the reason behind those decisions, how they've, how they've, um, dealt the hands that was given to them. Um, all of those things that I think will determine someone's character and also identify whether they're good at making decisions and whether they're genuinely the characteristics that you're trying to identify. It's all well and good saying you're driven, but if you're saying you're driven, but all you've done is put your job, put your CV on a job board and then respond, have two people come to you and offer you jobs and they're the interviews you're attending. Are you really driven? Because actually what you're doing is being incredibly reactive. You're not really identifying the best opportunities and then going after them. You're not showing ambition with the type of companies you're going after. So there's just a random example of how by digging into someone's background and the decisions they've made, the actions they've taken, I think it gives you a flavor. Um, and then I think you just have to like, without going into it in any more detail, because I'm sort of rambling on, but I think then it's just about maintaining standards. I think you need some sense checking questions at the end. Is this person going to increase the average on our sales floor? So that's a good question to mm. ask. So if you've got 50 people on your sales floor, right? And 10 of them are your absolute star performers. What's the best way to increase the average on your sales floor? Only hire people that you believe have the potential to be as good as the 10 best people you've already got in the business. That's the easiest way to increase the average on your sales floor. So again, by asking you a sense checking question like that, I think it really, really forces you to maintain standards and not just go with they'll do. So if someone for us wasn't at least a nine out of 10 based upon a scoring matrix, it was a no. So I don't know, maybe I've, I've veered off a little bit there, but that, that was kind of the approach that we had to hiring. And then the last thing I'll say on that is, I think some people sometimes get a little bit too fixated on making the right decision at the point of hiring that person. I think what's also really, really important from a hiring perspective, if you're trying to build a great recruitment team, is that you are brutally honest with people with regards to what your expectations and what the challenges are going to be when that person joins the organization and that that person agrees to and commits to those challenges and those expectations. Now, if they then come in and they don't follow through and do the things that they said they were going to do and live up to the standards that were clearly mapped out and they, they agreed to at the beginning of the process. And that's a two way thing, right? Because you're telling them this is what I'm going to do for you and you've got to follow through with that. But vice versa, they have to be able to do the same stuff for you. If they don't do that, they don't last. So the, the, the real thing at Liquid, the truth was the hard bit. It was really hard to get into liquid, but the real hard bit was staying in liquid. Because if you didn't demonstrate the right core attributes that you said and you gave it, you can't be a lion in the interview and then a mouse when you come on the sales floor, right? So I think we set a really high bar um, barrier to entry. I think we maintain standards that if you then didn't live up to that, 
you didn't stay around. And the truth of that was what it meant was that everyone who did come into the business and make it, they were really high standard. And I think that created the type of culture where you just had a lot of A players and A players want to work with other A players. And that in itself creates that type of culture where um, there's a there's a real like high achieving dynamic in a business, which again creates that magic from a culture perspective. Because you look left and you're really proud to work alongside the people you're working with. You look right and you feel the same way. And I think lots of us have had experiences working in sales where we look left and right and we think, why are they still here? You know? Yeah. Is is that is, is this the standard of the business where I work? Because you want to feel pride, proud, don't you? You want to feel pride in the organization you work. work. You want to feel, if, you're, if you have a high need for achievements, you want to feel like you're working somewhere where it's not easy to be because actually you have to be of a really high standard. And I think as soon as you lose sight of that and you start to let medio mediocrity creep into your business, I think it has a huge impact upon the culture. So again, yeah, I, I'm sort of talking and talking, but from a hiring perspective, that's the last piece of the puzzle that was really important for me. We were compassionate, but we were also really, really pragmatic about the people who came into the business and actually stayed in the business because we yeah. wanted to keep our performance standards extremely high. But we also wanted to maintain that culture of, um, you know, high achievement. Yeah, I think it was, um, I was, I think I was listening to Rio Ferdinand on maybe the Diary of CEO or, or the High Performance Podcast, but they were talking about how during the peak, like Alex Ferguson days, the he developed such a good culture there and a good, you know, they recruited so well with the right people, but also talented people as well, that the dressing room sort of like self-managed to a degree because if someone came mm. in and they were clearly, they might have been very talented, but they just weren't, you know, putting in the, the, the grind or they weren't, a man united player that, that that they'd sort of defined they alex ferguson didn't always need to be the one to sort of tell them to sort their shit out or, or, or move on sort of thing um the players would do that and it sounds like that's similar to what you created a, a culture is like an organism and this is a really weird analogy, but I'm going to run with it anyway. A culture is like an organism and the existing people in that culture are like the white blood cells. And then if a virus gets into that culture, and again, it's a horrible analogy using the term virus, but if, if something comes into that organism that isn't aligned, the white blood cells do what the like white blood cells do and they get rid of it. And the truth is that if you're in a really high performance environment and someone comes in and they don't live up to the same standards, and I'm not just talking about from a performance perspective, really, um, because skill development, that's what you're there for. You're there to give the people that are coming into your business the necessary skills and tools to be able to do their job to a really high standard. I think for us, it was more about character. It was it was more about mindset. And if you didn't have the right character or you, if you didn't have a character or mindset that was aligned to our business, which was about being very focused, about working hard, about having um, a growth mindset, about being um, taking responsibility and accountability for your own shit, you know, not making excuses. It was that type of environment. And look, the truth is, if someone came in who then who who sort of like talked a good game in the interview 
their actions would speak much louder than the words very quickly once they come onto that sales floor. And people would be looking mm. around thinking, well, they're not going to last long. You know, they're, they're not they're not on track to hit target yet. They've just got up and left and it's one minute past finish time. That's not the right mentality. That's not being accountable for yourself and saying, I'm going to deliver on a certain number. Well, if you say you're going to deliver on a certain number, do everything you possibly can to deliver on that certain number. That doesn't mean not having a life, but it does yeah. mean taking responsibility and saying, well, actually, I did something about it. Don't get to the end of the month and say, I failed to hit my target. Oh, and by the way, I basically didn't do anything about it, even though I could see it coming two or three weeks ago. So I think, again, it's just about creating a cultural mindset where everyone's aligned, everyone's bought into the mission of the business, because that was massive for us. We were a really mission-orientated business. We had really strong values. We knew who we were. We were good at identifying our tribe. And then going out and finding people who aligned with that tribe. But just as importantly, we were really, really good at saying, you know what, I don't think this is the environment for you if it didn't work out. And doing that quickly. If you if you muck it up on hiring, own it. Again, be accountable for that. Accept that you've made a mistake from a hiring perspective and respond to that really quickly. Because the truth is that most situations drag out for nine or 12 months. Um, yeah. And you know you know after a month or two whether someone's a right cultural fit for your business or not and if they're not do something about it would be my very you know pragmatic advice in a compassionate way of course yeah no i'd certainly agree one thing i'd be interested to to find out actually and i don't know if you if you've had this problem because i suppose in some way if you're hiring right from the beginning and you're getting the right people in yeah i suppose you suppose maybe you wouldn't but i always think that everyone's got like a Everyone gets a, gets to a point where their motivation starts to dip because maybe their goals aren't lofty enough, or maybe they're, now they're making more money than they ever thought they would, and then they sort of plateau. So, did you did you ever have that with 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 your team or certain members of your team, like you know top performers who are making, you know they're making twice as much as they ever thought they'd ever earn? How do you keep that person or, or encourage that person to stay with that growth mindset and and keep? keep evolving, keep growing, keep pushing? I think it's a two-way street. First and foremost, I think certain people are just intrinsically motivated. And your key as a recruiter is to try and identify people who are intrinsically rather than externally motivated. I'm, I'm in a fortunate situation now, right, where, you know, I, I, I sold a recruitment company. I still want to keep working. I've still got that fire and ambition inside me because I was just very fortunate to be born with a high level of intrinsic motivation. I have a high need for achievement and it doesn't matter how like financially successful I am. I still like doing stuff because I like competing. I like winning. I like building. I like hunting, you know, all those sorts of things that just come naturally to me. So I think first and foremost, I think the easiest thing in the world from a motivation perspective is just to hire people who are really, really motivated. And then actually a, a lot of what you've just described, it goes away because you don't need to motivate people really who are intrinsically motivated. All you need to do is give them, understand what they want to achieve, give them the ability to be able to look into the future and help them refine that a little bit. Cause sometimes you have to help them shape that. And then give them the platform and the objectives and the milestones to be able to work towards those things. Truth be told, though, not everyone's like that, you know, and mm. 
lots of people don't have that same level of desire for achievement on an ongoing basis. Again, you've just got to understand your individuals. The truth is, I, I use lots of terminology, which sometimes people find a little bit raw, but A players and B players, the real difference between an A, a player and a B player, from my experience, is not technical ability. It's the fact that an A player probably isn't so bothered about having like a really good work-life balance. They're more career-minded. Yeah. They're more competitive from a career perspective and they place more onus on their career than they do other aspects of their life. I'm not saying that's right or wrong because actually there's a bit of a curse with that stuff because you're never really genuinely happy. And actually, I think life, cool, there's more important things to life, right, than being in the, in the office 12 hours a day. But at the same time, we are who we are. I think, you know, B players are probably people who are just more balanced individuals. They're probably more healthy, like psychologically healthy individuals because they don't place so much onus on their professional lives and they want more of a balance in their work and personal lives. So that for me is often the biggest difference between an A player and a B player is what they want out of life. I think again, one of the mistakes I made earlier on was treating everyone like A players or managing everyone like an A player where I continually pushed and challenged and demanded more and more from an ambition and an expectation perspective. Right. Look, if you want, if you are doing X, Y, and Z, and it's a really good standard, and you're happy with your life, and you want to be able to spend as much time as possible with your, um, whatever it might be, your social group, your, your partner, your family, amazing. Let's build a plan around that, which doesn't require you constantly having to progress up the career ladder, take on more responsibility, and potentially not have time to do as much of those things outside of work. So again, I think it's just about understanding the individual, understanding the difference between internal versus external versus intrinsic motivation, and also accepting that sometimes people burn out a little bit. And if someone's mm. earning loads and loads of money and then they just lose their fire, I don't know how much, what you can do with that. Some people just do, and that they, they kind of lose their love for recruitment. And if they're not learning more, if they're not earning more and they're not growing and they're not they're not having fun. They're kind of the four things that you can focus in on as a recruitment leader. Um, sometimes a fresh start is a good thing for them and for the business as well. Do you think as well that you have to have, or it would be ideal to have a certain ratio of A players and B players? Like, can I don't, I'm not sure if you can have like a, an entire room of 50 A players highly competitive, um, but I don't know. What, 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 what do you think about that? And like, well, they're quite unusual as well, A players, because again, like just to reiterate here, I talk about A players and B players, and A, the very fact it's an A player kind of implies it's better. But the truth is, a lot of A players, I say, they're probably just not as like emotionally balanced and like emotionally or socially healthy as B players because they they place more emphasis. You know, I'm guilty of this myself. I place too much emphasis on my career versus other stuff in my life. Um, Look at a sell. Uh, look at a sale. Every sales floor reflects a bell curve from a performance perspective. If you think about a bell curve that goes up like that, you've got the average in the middle of that bell curve. And then on either side of that average, you've got the outliers, right? You've got the two tails to the to the left. You've got your underperformers and to the right, you've got the outliers on that side, um, the, the long tail on the right side, which is your your um, overperformers. Mm. So every sales floor is a bell curve. 
The middle 70% or so are your B players from a performance perspective. The ones that are underperforming to the left of the bell curve, that long tail, they're your, um, your C players, to be quite frank. And then the other side is your A players, who are the 15%, 15% or so, something like that, who are really, really overachieving from a performance perspective. So every single business is a mixture of A, B and C players, because all you've got to do is look at the bell curve. Your job, therefore, as a business leader isn't to to have a higher proportion of A players, because like I'm, I'm no mathematician, but I don't think that's a statistically accurate way to look at it. The, plat the, the idea is to try and move the bell curve to the right so that average performance can, continues progressing. So if you increase the average productivity on your sales floor, what happens is your bell curve keeps moving to the right from a performance perspective, but you're still going to have the same ratio of A, B and C players. It's just your B players would go into another recruitment company and be standout A players. And your C players would go into another recruitment company and be really, really strong B players. So... Again, it's about standards and it's about moving the bell curve to the right. Awesome. No, really insightful, mate. Cheers. Um, back to you, though. So your journey. So look, we've talked a lot about, um, you know, your experiences up until 2016. So could you bring us up to present day? So talk through the exit and then what you're doing now. Sure. So exited the business, um, kind of had a couple of years off. Um, got I got married the year before I sold the business. We had a baby just um, a month after I sold the business. So I decided to take a year or two off, which on reflection was ridiculous. What was I thinking? Having a newborn and then spending as much time at home as possible. That was um, really stupid. Um, but no, I, that was really enjoyable. It was nice to be able to spend that quality time with the family. Um, but going back to what I was talking about earlier, you know, I think it's there's a bit of a curse sometimes when you have a high need for achievement that you're always looking and thinking about what's next. I'm not very good at staying still. Um, I kind of need to be doing something and I need to be stimulated as well. So I didn't particularly enjoy my time off, to be quite honest, which isn't what I was expecting, actually. I thought it would be really, really different. And it was actually quite a challenging period. I've said this before in another podcast, it was, um, you know, everyone thinks it's sunshine and rainbows and from certain perspectives, right, it is. But then I think after about a month, when all of that stuff starts to wear off and it becomes normal, it's surprisingly quick how it wears off so fast. And you're, you start to get very itchy with regards to what you're doing next. So I, I did manage to take some serious time off, which I think was really good from a family perspective. But um, now I'm, I'm a shareholder and, a, and the strategic director at a company called Strive. So really, am, but they're a go-to-market specialist for VC-backed, um, software companies. So they're in a really interesting space. We've just opened up our, uh, an office in the U S in Tampa. So we've got an office in Manchester. We've got an office in Tampa, still a small company at this moment in time, sort of early twenties headcount, but. We've spent, I've been with that business now for about three years and we've spent the last, um, it's been quite tough because it's been very up and down from a market perspective, but we're at a really exciting stage where we're building something special there. We're very, very ambitious. We've got a really clear and compelling mission. We've got some amazing people in the business. So that's kind of my core bread and butter where I spend 90% of my time that, that you know, I, I'm involved in supporting those guys and, and helping those guys. Cause I, I think we can do something really, really special there. Um, 
come back to me in a couple of years and I think you'll you'll, you'll see that. Um, and then on the side of that as well, I'm quite interested in tech investment. So I do a bit of seed and pre-seed investment. So I started investing specifically into recruitment and HR tech, because again, it's an area I, you know, have a, have a reasonable understanding of, and it gives me the opportunity to be able to invest in, in exciting tech within the space that I'm already in, where there's a bit of a dual advantage, you know, me from a, from a brand and from an expertise perspective, and then, you know, the companies that I'm investing in. It's something I'm learning a lot about as well. So again, I really, really enjoy mm. that because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a keen learner. So yeah, that kind of brings me to present day. Awesome. Um, I've got a couple of quick random questions as well. I just want to ask just around, well, first of all, look, you've obviously been very busy over the last 17 years or so. And I think what would be really interesting is just to understand how you organize your day, how you stay productive and how you prioritize, um, especially over the last few years. Um, because I imagine there's days where you've just got, you just, there's not enough time in the week. Right. So do you have a particular system around that? Are you just naturally organized? How does that work? I, I am, I have grown to be quite naturally organized. Um, so that, that helps. I think first and foremost, good strategy is saying no a lot. So, you know, again, that, that's something that people like sometimes have to think about a bit, but actually the reality of good strategy is being able to say no all the time to stuff. So I think it's really important to be able to like a, a bit of a superpower, I think for good recruitment leaders is to be able to continually prioritize your tasks and focus on the one or two things that are gonna really move the most important levers in your business. So. From a prioritization, from an organization perspective, I think prioritization is incredibly important because have you heard of the law of triviality? I'm not sure I have actually, yeah, go on. Random, they, there you go. The law of triviality is basically, it's like the human tendency to spend a huge amount of time on trivial things that don't really matter compared to those mission critical things. And I think we're all guilty of that, right? It's really, really easy to fall into that. So I think if you if you focus in on what's most important and you're really honest with yourself, I think you can structure your time to make sure that you're focused on the most important leverage points and whatever it is you're doing. You can try and be disciplined with regards to acknowledging the fact that a lot of the stuff that you naturally gravi gravitate towards is nice to do rather than important to do. Um, yeah. So I think that that's really important. And then I think, you know, if, if, if you, if we're talking from a recruitment perspective, it's all about time blocking. So you've got, um, Hawksman's corollary, corollary. I can never even say it. Have you heard of that one? So you've got Parkinson's uh, law, which I've, is the, the amount of time. Hawksman's H O R S T M A N and then corollary C O R A double L A R Y. So Parkinson's law is that the time available will always expand to its maximum to complete a task. So if you set yourself an afternoon to do a job, it will take you all afternoon to get that job done, right? Typically, that's the way it goes. And again, that goes a little bit back to that thing where you don't work with necessarily the right level of urgency. Hortzman's, I can't even pronounce it, but I'm going to keep repeating it until I can or just making it even like more butchered. Hortzman's corollary is the inverse law. So giving yourself a more reduced time scale, you can get more done. 
So if you give yourself two hours to get a task done that you previously would have taken you all afternoon, guess what? All of a sudden, somehow, you give yourself a reduced amount of time frame to get that same task done, and you can get it done in that time scale. So it's basically about how much time you allocate to yourself to give tasks. So the key for me when I was recruiting was always to use time blocks. What are the critical activities that I need to do on a day-to-day -day basis? Give myself time blocks and objectives within each of those activity tasks, say two hours of cold calling, and this is what I want to achieve within those two hours. And after those two hours are up, I move on to the next task, regardless of whether I finished or not. So what that meant was it just meant that I could work with like insane urgency because I knew that if I didn't get it done within two hours, I wasn't going to get another opportunity before the end of the day to be able to do that task. So, you know, people talk about working long hours in recruitment and you do have to work long hours, but I think the most important thing to, to get more done is to work with more urgency, avoid trivial stuff that isn't going to move the needle and be really, really disciplined with regards to how you plan and structure your time from a time blocking perspective with clear objectives aligned to it. Awesome, mate. Yeah, super interesting. With regards to, you know, obviously, again, it sort of goes back to how busy you've been and growing a business and the stress that's come of that. A lot of the conversation at the moment is obviously around mental health and, and preventing burnout. Did you ever go through that? And, and if you didn't, like, how, how did you prevent burning out? Um, I was definitely burnt out by the time we exited liquid. So there's an example. And the truth is that my lifestyle wasn't healthy enough. So I just didn't live a healthy enough lifestyle. And I think that would have made a huge difference. I think that burnout is all about energy. And what you have to do is keep topping up your energy by doing stuff outside of work, which energizes you. That sounds so obvious, right? but it's not something that I figured out until much later in my life because I was doing things outside of work that took more might took my energy away rather than energized me. And I don't even necessarily mean physical energy. So yeah, I think health and fitness is incredibly important because it's, is it symbiotic with your mental health? I think that's the right word. It's definitely linked. I so I think healthy body, healthy mind is without a shadow of a doubt true. So I think the more you can focus on um, having a healthy lifestyle out of work, I think that's going to really be really impactful. But it's also about doing things that actually energize you. And that can be anything. So like I'm a massive reader. I like learning. So I like to read. Reading and learning gives me energy. So that actually I'm in a better position then to be able to work with intensity and pace when I go back to work. If I have to take my, I don't know, random example, because I did it recently. If I have to take my son to a children's party and be surrounded by 20 screaming children for an hour, by the time I get out of that, some people love that, right? Some people absolutely love that stuff and it energizes them. Me, I'm exhausted by the time I get out. So it's, it, they're two really random examples, but you know, I think the key is just to find those things in your life which give you energy and make sure that you're really structured and disciplined in doing those things outside of your work to continually energize yourself. Within work, I like to talk about a 70-30 rule. If the 70% of the stuff I do are strengths versus 30% of weaknesses, you're good because you're going to keep your like, motivation and energy. And for me, strengths aren't just things that you're good at. But again, it's things that give you energy. So if you're a recruiter and you're in a 360 job 
and you really, really enjoy delivery, but you really, really don't enjoy um, new logo business development, that's a challenge because if the role is 50-50, you're never really going to get the opportunity to maintain positive energy. Whereas if you can actually do a job where a minimum 70% of what you did was stuff you were good at and enjoyed doing, which therefore gave you energy, you're going to be much better off to keep your gas tanks um, full. That's sometimes easier said than done when you're starting out in recruitment and you just have to mm. suck it up and eat, eat some shit early on, I think, in reality, in your recruitment career. But I think as you grow in your recruitment career, the, the key is to be able to identify what your strengths are, not just because you're good at it, but also because you enjoy doing it and therefore it gives you energy. And then either tailor your role in the organisation you're in and grow in a way which plays to your strengths or go to an organization that is going to give you the opportunity to play to your strengths. Because I think if you're you're forced into a job where you spend too much time doing stuff that you just don't enjoy, that's the easiest way to burn out. Yeah. Because again, that's it's really interesting, actually. Yeah, I never really never really looked at it like that. I think a lot of recruiters will probably listen to that and hopefully take that on board because I think that's actually a, a, a very sustainable way to, to keep, well, it just, if anything, just keeping enjoying your job really right so um we've all got to do stuff we don't enjoy and that's why you, you can't have a hundred percent we've all got to do stuff in our jobs myself included and like, as a business owner the good thing that you've got right is that you can actually bring people in to do the things that you aren't good at yeah so you can really you can create that environment for yourself but the truth is we all have to do stuff we don't enjoy which takes our energy away of course we do we can't be unrealistic about that but the key is to keep it maximum 30%. Because if it goes over 30%, you get into the point where, again, it, it, it balances itself out and you're not left with any energy at the end of the day. So, again, it was just a good mental framework that I used to work on and I sort of talk to people about, which gets them thinking about their jobs in a slightly different way from an energy like you know level perspective. Yeah, no, super interesting, super helpful. Um, two more questions. So personal branding on LinkedIn. Again, you know, hot topic at the moment. How important do you think this is? And do you have any tips on how to, you know, get content out there and build a following? No, I think, I think marketing yourself and building a brand can be hugely valuable, but it's that, you know, and again, and I do it, I do a lot of it, right? Because I think it's advantageous for, for Strive and it gives me, it kind of, makes me recognizable which is positive from a deal flow perspective with regards to the, the investment stuff that i do but i think you have to be really clear on what you're trying to achieve and i think you have to be very targeted and strategic in what you're doing otherwise it does just become something where you're you're just going through the motions of putting stuff out which doesn't necessarily have a return on investment attached to it so mm. I think you have to be thoughtful and considered and strategic in how you approach your mark, your branding. I think you have to get really, really good at your day job before you worry too much about some of that. Cause I think it's incredibly important, but if you're not already really good at the core basics of recruitment, I wouldn't be worrying too much to be quite frank about whether you're posting three times a week, because I think there's more yeah. important things that you need to nail the fundamentals first and foremost, before you move on to the nice to haves to go with the essentials. But I think if you get it right, there's huge value in it. But I think it's like everything. I don't think everyone does or can get it right because 
it doesn't play to everyone's strengths. It goes back to what I was talking about earlier. Some people really enjoy copyright. Some people have got quite strong opinions. Strong. Some people don't mind if they get shit because everyone mm. does. You know, you just you invite keyboard warriors to basically give you shit from time to time. And that's not particularly pleasant. Some people, they do it and then that happens to them and they say, I don't want to do this anymore. So I think, again, it's strength-based stuff, right? But I think there is huge value there if you get it right, but you do have to be strategic with it. Um, and then hints and tips. I think you've got to talk about what you do as much as possible on a regular basis and make it insightful. I think you've got to try and add value and you've got to give yeah. away value for free. I think that's the most important thing. What do you do once you start to get into the habit of thinking that would make an interesting thing to talk about and noting it down in your iPhone or whatever it might be, and then just build yourself up a list in the background of stuff that you could talk about, which is in interesting or could offer some insight based upon your particular skills and what you do in your job. And then the other thing is consistency to go with the quality. It, like, it takes ages to start to build up the recognition that probably you want within the first three months. But if you asked a room of a hundred recruiters who got really, really good at recruitment in their first three months, I bet not many did. Some mm. will, but the reality is I think it takes six to 12 months before you start to get good at recruit, at least six as well, at least six, if not 12 months to get good at recruitment. I think it's the same from building a, building a brand. I think if you go into it and you don't realize that you probably need to post three to five times a week, for six months before you even start to get any traction, if you're looking to build a following and really attract the ICPs or the buyer personas that you're going after or the candidates within that space, whatever it might be, I think you've got to be prepared to take that. Because again, I think people just have a bit of an unrealistic expectation. They think they can just post you know, two or three things and then all of a sudden they're gonna start getting stuff back from it. It requires a huge amount of effort to start getting the returns that actually justify the return on effort because there's a lot of effort that goes into to getting to that from my experience at least oh yeah for sure there's, there's so much that goes into it beyond um just posting you know once or twice a week right like and you don't really understand that until you start doing it i, I remember when i started about what two two and a half two and a bit years ago um i did the training with hoxo i always like to give them a little shout out because they they're yeah. the ones who sort of got me going and um yeah, it's just, you know, it's just, it is, it is a long-term commitment. Um, I think one of the, one of the things I've actually been seeing recently actually is, I don't know why, but people like that they post to impress people who do their job rather than their target audience. So I've seen, for example, I've seen some recruiters posting to impress other recruiters when actually their goal is to like build their audience in like you know the, the software engineering fintech space because a it's i suppose it's maybe it's a bit it's it's, fric it's a bit less friction because they're not having to have to have to be as creative but also people i mean i've, I've certainly done it I'm, su I'm sure everyone has really you fall into that trap of like you get a post that gets like you know 100 likes 200 likes thousand likes whatever and you're like oh that feels quite good you get the dopamine rush and then you're it's I, mm. it's, a, it's a good question for you actually like have, have you have you found yourself having to fight that like you know chasing the views and the impressions rather than well, your actual end goal? I, i'm annoyed if I, if I set myself objectives like everything so i say well, if i put a post out this is what good looks like 
this is what excellent looks like. It's like, like you do with recruitment and this is what below standard looks like. So I set myself milestones and benchmarks because I want to be able to gauge and gamify what I'm doing. And obviously then it's annoying if you don't get it. But the truth is, I think the way that I am I proud of the post is kind of the way that I think about it now. So I, I try to stop myself from doing that by just saying, am I proud of the post? Because some of the stuff mm. I put out there is a bit random, but I, I like it. And I think that's interesting. So I put it out there. And sometimes it's the, it's the things that I find most interesting and are a bit quirky that maybe don't get the same level of traction as some of the more um, obvious things, to be quite honest, which is, is fine. I get that because it's, you know, I'm probably quite, um, the things I find interesting probably aren't that interesting to other people. So I get it. But again, I think what you've got to do is try and place, you've got to put your, you've got to say, look, am I proud of that? Do I find it interesting? Then it's a good thing to post. And then actually you've got to distance yourself from chasing likes, which I, I agree. I think, I think there's a danger there. And I think that some people on LinkedIn, especially in recruitment, I think they're just mean. I think there's a lot of arrogance and I think there's a lot of meanness. And I say stuff, right, which can be, which definitely riles people up because I can be quite direct and I just kind of say stuff sometimes, which maybe I don't think through how it's going to be perceived or maybe I don't word it particularly well. But I've had some instances where people are, they're just a bit cowardly and they're, they're really quick to jump on and attack a post and and then other people jump on like that little herd mentality thing and yeah. i think that's a challenge as well because i think again I, I just find that really disappointing if i see a post i don't agree with or i don't like guess what just move on from the post so i think you've in, in recruitment i've seen that a bit and I, I think that's really lame and i think i think that puts people off as well because there's definitely an, there's definitely a thing where people will jump on other posts when they don't like what's being said, and actually that person is maybe starting out and trying to actually find their voice, and then all of a sudden you have loads of plonkers jump on and say something which is going to put them back, and um and that's another area which I find is quite unpleasant, which I think you have to be prepared for a little bit. Yes. Sometimes if you're putting out opinions and you're putting out things that people might disagree with other people will really vocally disagree with it in quite a mean and unkind way. And you have to be prepared for that. So again, I think it's just important that people just take that with a pinch of salt and, and don't take it to heart. Yeah, I, I think that's actually one of the, the biggest things in my opinion. I mean, um, the when I'm ever, I'm, and ever asked, someone asked me about like personal brand or LinkedIn and stuff, that's the first thing I start with usually. It's like, just be prepared that you're going to get you're going to get haters. You could be, you, your advice could be perfectly valid. I mean, I've seen, I've seen some really good posts that I, I really like. It's really good, like sales advice or recruitment advice. I was like, yeah, that's bang on. No one can disagree with that. And then you get five people in the comments saying that's wrong or, you know, you're an idiot or whatever. And, um, and I'm just looking back and I'm just thinking, well, A, they're not, but also why did you have to approach it like that? Like why, why are you, why are you just going to be direct and be aggressive? But it's, it's the whole thing of like, you'll never find someone who's hating on you that's doing better than you. And sure. I think that's really important to, 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 to remember, like they might just be having a bad day and they're not, and it, and also like insults and hate on social media. It's, it's always actually about that person. Really. It comes from their sense of insecurity or whatever. They're not happy. You don't get happy, successful driven people you know, making stupid comments on people's posts, do you? It's always people who 
you aren't aren't doing very well in 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 somewhere in their life. So I think that's really important to remember. But um, last question, mate. AI, ChatGPT, all that stuff, right? You know, probably everyone's probably bored of talking about it right at this point, but it's not going away. What does the future of recruitment look like? What does the next five, ten years look like? And are AI coming for our jobs? Uh, look, five, ten years, I've got absolutely no idea. No, no one does because we don't know how quickly it's going to advance. I think one of these things with technology is it has inflection points where suddenly the, the technological advance like shoots forward at an incredibly fast rate. That doesn't necessarily mean it's going to keep going at that same rate. And I'm no technologist, by the way. So I genuinely don't know where we're going to be in two or three years time from an, uh, from an advancement perspective. But if it does keep advancing, it is pretty fascinating because I think people talk. I think that the pro recruitment thing is it's going to make it, it's, it's only going to make recruiters better because it's going to increase productivity. I don't think that's quite right, actually. It's going to increase business productivity more so than it's going to increase recruiter productivity. And I think what you're going to end up with is smaller businesses of humans with much more tech technology involved in that business. Because we're starting to see now, like tech stacks, how big they are. But I think the next round of things that come that come through could be really transformational. If you think about prospecting, whether clients or candidates, how ineffective that is. A lot of that process is ineffective. It's five percent of like influence and ninety five percent of um, research and uh, process. I think a lot of that's going to get taken away by AI. Um, understandably so. And I think that could happen reasonably quickly if the technology keeps advancing at the stage that it's at. So I think you're going to, I think it's going to raise the standards within the recruitment industry as well, because I think you're going to have to be good now, because I do think recruitment businesses are going to be more productive because they're not going to need the same headcount to do the same jobs that they're doing at this moment in time, which in turn is going to mean hopefully that the, the consultants that are there are going to be higher standard maybe than, um, than the average in the industry at this moment in time. Yeah, I was chatting with someone recently about this, actually, a, 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 a recruitment business owner. And I think they were saying what actually might happen is with all the technology and everything, the bar will get higher. So the ones who aren't doing it very well, the cowboys or whatever you want to call them, they might just end up getting completely pushed out of the industry. And then you're left with maybe it, maybe it shrinks a little bit, but then you're, hopefully you're left with, you know, a much higher bar to, to, to the industry, which is then supported by AI. But it's it's going to be absolutely fascinating because no, none of us know what's going to happen. Like even even the the guys who are creating like ChatGPT and stuff, right? It, they just have no idea because you 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 can't. It's it's um, unexplored territory, and it it's. It, I think everyone's a little bit scared especially if you're like you know a copywriter or something like naturally you're gonna be be scared but it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting to see how far it goes how it evolves recruitment and how it changes as well um the optimist in me the optimist in me thinks that it's gonna take it's gonna take many 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 decades for technology to be able to replace that human to human 
contact, you know, the ability to sell, to build relationships and whatever. I think we'll, we'll, we'll probably get there, but not in our lifetimes personally, but who knows, you know, with, with things increasing exp exponentially and evolving exponentially, maybe we'll get there sooner and maybe we'll be out of a job. Maybe we'll just be run by robots. It's, it's certainly not all going to be run by, yeah, we're, we're a long, long way away from everything being run by robots, isn't it? It'll be fascinating to see whether internal recruitment teams are AIs. And then you've got the outreach and the prospecting stuff done by AIs. Those two things link up and communicate with each other. And then you just have a human coming involved at that point um, mm. to vet the work that's been done. But it's fascinating, isn't it? Imagine, you know, you take a, the human takes the job brief, goes into loads and loads of detail, but they're actually supported by the AI taking the brief to make sure that the brief is full and comprehensive and that it's identifying any potential gaps in the information, et cetera, et cetera. You click a button and within one second, the entire market's been mapped out. And that market of 300 potential applicants that fit that incredibly detailed job brief have been approached with a demo, with a promo video. That promo video includes, you know, the CEO doing an introduction, uh, uh, an introduction to the mission, vision and values of the business, you know, click here to speak to a consultant who's currently doing the role, you know, within the organization, arrange an interview here, blah, blah, blah. Who knows? It's going to be absolutely amazing and it's going to transform things massively. I don't think we're that yeah. far away from that. Chat, chat GPT is, I think it's amazing the first couple of times you use it. It's a little bit like magic, isn't it? But if you really, really know a subject matter, it's not as good as people think. That's my, like, really, that's my opinion. Like, when you're really, really knowledgeable about those, whatever it might be, if you know, um, I don't know, any example, but I put stuff in there, and yeah, it produces a decent response. But I think someone who isn't a knowledge isn't a, an expert in that particular uh, um, subject matter would see that information and go, Oh my goodness me, this is 10 out of 10 incredible information. It's just produced it out of nowhere, but actually it's not always quite as impressive as it, it pumps out at this moment in time. So I think there's a little bit more work to be done on that to actually get it to the sort of standards of genuine mastery in particular subject matters. Cause it is just, it's not thinking it's just regurgitating isn't it what it what it yeah. what 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 the internet says it, it what it thinks it should say um but i do think the advancement's amazing and, and crazy and i think there's going to be a real trust issue as well when you've got deep fake videos if i could be a prospector and i could sit there and i could say right again here's my market i want to send a video to the 300 candidates that fit the criteria of what i'm looking for and i can click a button and the AI can produce a deep fake video of me selling the opportunity over 45 seconds for each individual at a click of a finger, or I can leave voice notes or WhatsApp. I can, I can leave voice notes with my voice and the AI yeah. does it for me based upon a particular script, inserting personalization as I deem appropriate at the click of a button or I can press a button and it will immediately tell me which of those emails are going to access and which aren't. It can immediately call a hundred people at the same time. And the two people or 50 people at a time. And the one person that answers the phone is the one that I get on the phone. And it immediately provides me with all of that information as to who's picked up and the things that I should be doing and the scripts in front of me. And it can give me prompts as I'm on the call. You know, the, the, the next wave of technology is going to be really, really fascinating. Um, and it's going to make us much, much more productive initially. But then what's going to happen is actually a lot of that information is just going to be taken over by the business and the business is going to become a bit more centralized with regards to that stuff. And there's going to be less people doing more important jobs with regards to influence and trust. 
Um, and a lot of the other stuff is going to be taken care of, a lot of the more manual process stuff, which doesn't involve influence, which doesn't involve building trust and connecting and dealing with another human. A lot of that's going to be taken away, isn't it? Which is going to mean, you know, smaller workforces of more highly skilled, high value individuals. Yeah, I saw uh, I saw something a few weeks ago where the these kidnappers had used AI to clone a like a really rich woman's daughter's voice because I think she was she had a podcast or something, right? So they pumped like two thousand hours worth of podcasting into this thing, got the system to call her mum. And say i've been kidnapped i'm on the phone they've got me you need to send x amount of money to here or they're going to kill me and amazing it's not amazing it's ter terrifying but... yeah and, and luckily what the mum did is she she like finished the conversation with her daughter then called her daughter and was like just double checking that that was all real and the daughter was like what are you talking about and she's like are you are you kidnapped it's like what do you mean am i kidnapped what are you on about no She's like, I just received a phone call from you. And she, anyway, they obviously it turned out that the, the, the kidnappers use an AI. But what will be really interesting from a sales point of view, and again, I think we're a long way away from this, but just because I think, you know, effective selling and just human communication generally is, is, is extremely complex. But what will be interesting is if we get to a point where, like, you can create or, like, take a really top bidder or a really good business development manager or something, and maybe that business development manager could like sell their um voice identity or something to companies so they've got a good salesperson as an ai that's 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 genuinely where i think things are going because actors are doing that and keanu reeves i think he's just put a clause in his contract where they cannot use his um his voice and his face and stuff they can't store it in ai so they mm. have to hire him because all the actors and all the writers as well with chat GPT and stuff, but they're all getting actually quite concerned that um, in the not too distant future, in the next 10, 15, 20 years, you might not even need actors because you can pretty much create an entire movie mm. from scratch, just using a technology, no set, nothing. And that's, it's just, it's mind boggling, really. It's mind boggling. So yeah. Um, we can go on and on about this, mate. Look, um, thanks so much for coming on. It's been absolutely fascinating and a pleasure to talk to you. Um, where do you want people to like go to see your stuff? Like, what's your website? What's your social medias, etc.? Find me on LinkedIn. It's Alex Elliot, and there's two L's and two T's in Elliot. Um, I've managed to croak my way through the whole interview, so there we go. I'm not normally this husky, but um, hopefully, I've been comprehensible. Is that a comprehensible? Um, but no, I've really enjoyed it, David. Thank you for inviting me on. It's been really good. I, I love chatting, anything, recruitment and business. So um, it's, been, it's been really good fun. Legend, mate. Thanks so much.